Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We discuss the latest news from the front as Ukrainian troops pull back from Severodonetsk after weeks of pounding by Russian artillery. We hear from our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, who's just got back from the Kaliningrad-Lithuania border. He talks to us about his reporting there and gives us an insight into the EU's thinking on Ukraine's candidate status for EU membership. And finally, I speak to Anna Vertsan. Anna's from Kiev, where she lives with her husband and her dog. She spent the opening days of the war watching missiles fly over her apartment while battling COVID-19. She tells us her story. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 24th of June, day 121. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor, Venetia Rainey, and Brussels Correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom and Venetia for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so the big news is the... Ukrainian forces are planning to withdraw from what remains of Severodonetsk city. This has been expected over the last well weeks, basically, but it has looked has looked uh, as if it, there's no other option for the last last few days. Um, don't know if that withdrawal has actually taken place yet. To the south, there's also another a small salient there. Russian Russian uh, Russia has made some advances there, um, and looks like they were in a position to cut off Ukrainian troops. So it looks like a like a planned withdrawal from that area. How far back they go um, into through beyond Lysychansk, we don't know. But um, the officials said that they will they will be withdrawing from Severodonetsk. Now it's really interesting that area um we've we've been been talking about it for weeks now and the very slow gains by russia have, have come at at a, a extreme cost huge cost and uh, to to russia in particular but but both sides have suffered badly but it seems as if ukraine took the decision to stand and fight there for what i mean severodonetsk is a big city but it's not really on the way to anywhere it doesn't doesn't have a major political hub it's not a major transportation hub i mean it's a bit it's, it is a big city but it's not it's not of great strategic importance and it looks like ukraine decided to stand and fight there because putin made it such a big deal when when they got when russia was pushed out of the north of the country um putin said that actually all along the the objective had been to liberate the the russian speaking areas of the donbass from the nazis and yeah etc etc and so he turned the fight into one of one of ground specifically tied to the Donbass. So so it was then 
hugely symbolic for him, even though Russia was making comparative better gains in the South. And you could argue that if the Russian gains in the South had been supported and pushed on through Mikhailov and to the West and to t maybe take Odessa, then that would that would have gone a, a much greater way to to uh, forcing Ukraine to cease to be a, a, a viable, sovereign, economically uh, capable state. So why Russia didn't do that and instead cho chose to go grinding on through the Donbass, we think is only down to, to Putin's ego really and and sort of trying trying to gain something from this from being ejected from the north and saying that the donbass was the the objective all along but but what ukraine's done there they they seem to have ceded space for uh for time so they they've held up the russian advance a bit like the defenders in mariupol in the azovstal plant did they they held their ground and and just kept wearing down russia's forces it looks like that has sim similarly happened in severodonetsk and um now ukraine have have felt that either They've uh, inflicted a sufficient amount of pain. I mean, they wouldn't have kept going if their pain had been greater than the assessed pain from Russia. So Ukraine's only stood there and fought because they felt it was it was worth it. Um, so what those gains would have been probably in terms of wearing down Russian equipment and morale and and uh, the ground forces. It's also bought them time, time for the heavy weapons from the West to come uh, into the country, and I've got a, a few more. I've got some notes on that in just a moment, but it but it looks as if this hasn't just been a, from Ukraine's point of view, just a slugfest for 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 ground as important as as any ground is. You don't want to cede any ground to the to the enemy necessarily, um, but it looks like they've traded it for for time and space and for all the other the, the reasons. Bet, you know, betting on this on this idea that it's Putin's ego meant, that meant that he didn't reinforce the South and kept going in the East. So it looks like they're, they're pulling back. How far, we're not sure. To what positions, we, we don't know. And how many, uh, if any, Ukrainian troops are going to be cut off, we're not sure. Russia claiming they're going to be able to encircle 2,000. I think that's that's quite quite toppy. Um, but we shall see over the next few, few days. But yeah, that, that's a, a significant um, moment a tactical moment, I don't think it's it's in any way strategic. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Venetia, would you like to add to that and then tell us about this car bomb we've heard about in Kherson? Yeah, I think there's there's not much more I can add to the Severodonetsk analysis that, that Dom gave it. I mean, he's also written for us this morning about how it's really a, a hollow victory for Russia. So um, worth going to our website and reading that when you get a chance. Um, in Kherson, I think it's been very interesting. We've obviously been following what's been happening there. This occupied city in the south was the first to fall to Russia right at the beginning of the war. Um, and we've seen a lot of resistance from Ukrainians. Um, and today is probably the biggest bit of resistance that we've seen. We've seen a, a car bomb has killed a Russian installed official. Now, we have had a few reports of car bombs previously. There was one a few days ago. There was one last week. But no one's been killed so far. Today, someone was killed, Dmitry Slavichenko, who is head of a local department. Apparently, he was known as a pro-Russian youth activist even before the war. And so he was installed as part of Moscow's new occupied regime there. Um, he had a bomb placed under his car that detonated the moment he got in and he died instantly. Um, so that, that's that's more information on a really interesting story of Ukrainian resistance to the Russian occupation. We look at the sort of advances that they're making in the Donbass, these slow grinding advances. 
it's easy to forget that, yes, they've captured a lot of the South, but they need to hold on to it for it to be any kind of meaningful victory. Um, and, you know, events like this suggest that that's going to be very tricky for them. Um, we'll also be looking in the Sunday Telegraph at how they're trying to impose the Russian curriculum in schools there and how they haven't been able to find any Ukrainian teachers who are willing to teach the Russian curriculum. And so they're going to be finding ways around that. So watch out in the Sunday Telegraph for that. Um, another story just linked to the curse on story from a sort of slightly different angle. Um, We've heard reports that Zelensky is thinking of sacking the head of the SBU, the Ukrainian spy chief, a guy called Ivan Bakunov. Now, this is apparently because of the Ukrainian losses in the South at the beginning of the war, because of how fast places like Kherson fell to the Russians. Apparently, they were very underprepared. There have been a lot of preparation put into the East, but not much in the South. Um, Now, Ivan Bakunov was a childhood friend of Zelensky. They're very, very close friends, um, going back a long way. And there was quite a bit of disquiet when he was first appointed in 2019 when Zelensky came in. Because a lot of people thought it was quite a corrupt decision. They, you know, they questioned Ivan's credentials. You know, did he have enough experience to be the spy chief or was he just being appointed because he was a close personal friend of Zelensky's? So now there's some suggestion that maybe he'll be sacked and... I'm I'm curious as to, and this is just purely speculative, but whether it's to do with the, the losses in Ukraine um, or, you know, perhaps they're starting to think about their EU membership process and tackling the more suspect appointments in the government. Corruption is one of the biggest things that Ukraine will have to deal with in order to become an EU member many, many years down the line. Um, so I think that's an interesting development to keep an eye on. Well, thank you very much, uh, Venetia. Dom, can, you've mentioned you have some updates on the announcement from the US of further aid to Ukraine. Would you like to give us those? And then, Venetia, I think we'd like to hear from you about uh, Zelensky's appearance at Glastonbury. Yeah, we need to keep on top of the numbers here. The the aid flowing in from, from the US and elsewhere, it's it's pretty constant, or the announcements are fairly constant. If we don't update them as and when they happen, we will very quickly lose track. So just to, just to make people aware, last night the US announced another package, a $450 million package of military aid to Ukraine. The The headline there is um, another four HIMARS, so the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, the big, the very long range, very precise weapons, exactly the, the heavy artillery that, that Ukraine have been calling for. So that's an additional four HIMARS. That takes to 14, the total number of mo- multiple launch rocket systems that have been um, promised and thought to, some thought to be already be in Ukraine. There's footage, unverified footage, but footage of uh, supposedly of a HIMARS already firing. So 14 MRS systems, that's eight HIMARS from the US, three M270 multiple launch rocket systems from the UK and another three from Germany. Yep, just checking my maths, thank God for that. 14, didn't have to take my shoes off. Uh, So 14 multiple launch rocket systems there. US also supplying 18 tactical vehicles. Now, these are the the, uh, wheeled vehicles we're expecting, um, derivative of of the Humvee that we've seen in recent decades in US service. Um, so, so not complete off-road capability, but very, very capable. And we've seen Ukraine um, adapting these types of vehicles with anti-tank missiles and anti-air missiles. So, uh, if they don't come with with that, those weapon systems are fitted already, wouldn't be surprised if that's if that's an adaptation we see quite soon. So, eighteen of those. Also, um, eighteen coastal and uh, and riverine patrol boats from the US. Again, an interesting move. I mean, there's a the, the, obviously the um, 
Ukraine has a, a whole number of of rivers as well as its vast coastline, but but you know a number of rivers cutting through it, and so having a, a military capability on there is is uh, is well will will be helpful if that's where the fight goes. Um, thirty six thousand rounds of one hundred five millimeter. So the big heavy artillery that we talked about, the HIMARS and the M two seventy, that's that's uh, well they, they're they're rockets, but the, the heavy artillery, the M triple sevens and so on, are um and the M one hundred nine are one five five mil. So thirty six thousand rounds of one hundred five mil rounds. The one hundred five is a smaller gun, older. Um, these are generally they're they're classified as light guns, but you know they'll still make your eyes water if one of those things lands near you. So thirty six thousand rounds. Um. Thought to be there to supply um, kit that was sent out previously, and for which New Zealand New Zealand supplied and New Zealand trained two hundred and thirty Ukrainian soldiers in the UK on these on these systems. Uh, and there were some there's a, 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 a other spares and uh, logistics supplies as well. So this takes to a total of six billion dollars, big B billion dollars. Um, since February the 24th, the first package was announced actually on February 25th, you know, US very quickly out of the blocks. So that's $6 billion the US have, have supplied a, a promise so far for Ukraine. Um, going in the right direction, Ukraine's still, still, uh, you know, rightly asking for more, I think. Um, in particular on the multiple launch rocket systems, I say it takes to 14. Ukraine said they need 300. Um, so, you know, a long way to go for their aspiration, but these things are very, very capable. We'll have to see how they are, how they are employed. Um, but yeah, another another lump of aid, and expecting more next week, probably in in the NATO summit, which uh, which takes place in Madrid Tuesday Wednesday of next week. Thanks very much for that, Dom. That was incredibly comprehensive. I think just what we needed in terms of updates on the weapon systems. Um, Vinicia, Glastonbury Festival has started in the UK, and there there was a surprise uh, guest uh, virtually um, this uh, t- today. Would you tell us about that? Yes, there was. So if you're at Glastonbury, well, you're probably not listening to this podcast, but people who are at Glastonbury who were queuing up to see um, the Libertines, who were gathered to see the Libertines, might have been surprised to see Zelensky pop up first. Classic Zelensky address. He was asking for the support of Glastonbury goers. He said, spread the truth about Russia's war. Help Ukrainians forced to flee their homes. Prove that freedom always wins. Time is priceless and every day is measured in human lives. I mean, he's really nailed addressing all these different audiences as we've seen him speaking to all these parliaments around the world and finding the sort of emotional strings to tug on. Um, But I think what was interesting about this address is that he directed them to a website called United24, which was... It directs you basically to a, a, like a place where you can donate. Um, and it was set up in May by Zelensky's government to try and increase transparency and all the funds go to the National Bank of Ukraine to try and sort of gather all the sort of interest in Ukraine and giving people who want to give money. The donations, though, are for medical aid, rebuilding Ukraine, and also for defence and demining. Now, it doesn't give you any further details about what defence might include... But obviously, some of those things will be weapons. You can sort of split that into defensive versus offensive weapons if you want. But some of those weapons will kill people. Um, and it's interesting that he's gone to Glastonbury, you know, a festival, sort of home of hippie love that's been going on since the 70s and where people are gathered to, you know, enjoy recreational substances and relax and enjoy themselves and be in a spirit of peace and oneness. And here he is asking for weapons to help, the, for money to help fund the war effort. You can see on the website, website that zero money has so far gone towards rebuilding Ukraine. About $1 million has gone towards medical aid and $42 million has gone towards defence and demining. You don't get a further breakdown, as I said, on what that goes on. But I just thought that was pretty extraordinary that that's what he's gone to Glastonbury asking for. 
Thank you very much, Venetia. Um, thank you again for your time. I realise you have to run back to, to the busy foreign desk, so thanks, thanks uh, a huge amount for that. Um, Joe Barnes, we'd like to bring you into the conversation now. Joe, you're our Brussels correspondent, but you spent some time uh, in Lithuania recently on the Kaliningrad border. We've talked a lot about uh, about the Kaliningrad and the Lithuanian blockade. Um, what did you see when you were there? Hi, folks. Yes, yeah, so I've been in uh, Kibati, which is the kind of frontier town in southwest Lithuania, right on the border with Kaliningrad. It's where the it's where the EU meets Russia, um, and Basically, that is the new kind of frontier, front line in the kind of the diplomatic standoff between Russia and the West. Basically, Russia has accused Lithuania and the EU of blockading Kaliningrad. And that is because Lithuania, as you've probably been kind of informed through this podcast quite a few times now, um, has basically stopped shipments of things like luxury goods, um, building materials, steel and coal um, coming into Kaliningrad which cross, basically, they travel from Moscow through Belarus and Minsk into Lithuania and then on to Kaliningrad. Basically, Lithuania said, look, we're implementing the EU sanctions and these things have come through EU territory, so we're not going to let them through. We're not going to let them leave our, our territory. And Russia kind of freaked out at this and basically threatened reprisal, serious consequences um, against Lithuania unless what Moscow called a blockade is lifted. Um but so what I saw is I visited this, this visited Kibati, and it's kind of a quaint kind of Soviet-era town um, where there's a railway station, very few trains in and out of it every day. And then there's a truck checkpoint and a basically a border checkpoint where you can walk across into Kaliningrad from the EU. And it's, it's, it's a quaint little place. It's, it's full of lots of elderly residents that have spent basically their whole lives living there. Uh, it's kind of run-down Soviet-era kind of farmhouses, but it's, they're very like charming of Everyone has their own allotment and they're growing their own vegetables. It's kind of this kind of place that you would, if, if you didn't know what's going on, you could be kind of, you could be excused for kind of forgetting there's a kind of a war going on between like your neighbour and someone else. Uh, but what was, what was quite interesting, I think, the, the, and I've done a dispatch in, in today's paper and online, was this sleeper train which travels every day from Moscow through, through Belarus and Minsk and then on to Kibati before heading into Kaliningrad. And at the moment, because of these sanctions, this train is stopped in, in Kibati and it's boarded by armed guards, um, Lithuanian armed guards, and they basically are carrying out these kind of systematic, very rigorous checks to make sure that this, this train isn't kind of busting the EU sanction regime. But I think the most interesting thing that I kind of observed was Lithuania is playing its own kind of part in the information war. These, these Russians... Are cut off from the West. They're not. They're not hearing kind of the truth about what's happening in in Ukraine. Um, they arrive at this station. Um, the curtains are drawn. They're no longer allowed to get off the train. So previously, Russians would be, have a short stop there as they just clear a few bit of customs paperwork, and they'd be able to get stretch their legs, breathe in kind of the countryside air of Southwest Lithuania, and then quickly get on their way into Kaliningrad. But now they're, they're stuck there for about an hour, an hour and a half. Our armed guards kind of go through and check everyone, kind of check any of the goods that are on the uh, loaded on the train. Um, but there's basically the Lithuanians come up with this quite ingenious idea of offering a free Wi-Fi service, which is advertised in Russian. But unlike, so sorry, much like uh, when you go to Starbucks in the UK and you try and connect to there for Wi-Fi, you're asked to give details before you can actually get access to the air uh, to the internet. 
Um, in this case, you have to scroll through uh, like some really graphic images of the kind of atrocities that are being committed by Russian troops on the ground in Ukraine. And it's basically a Lithuanian effort to kind of use kind of their information systems to basically tell people in Russia what's going on in Ukraine because they're, they're completely shielded from this. Um, so basically, as a Russian, you can connect to this Wi-Fi, you scroll through this great list of kind of really graphic and horrible images. And then once you get to the end, that's when you're finally able to use the internet and actually kind of scroll through. And it's Western, it's Westerns as well. So you could visit the telegraphs. We're, we're blocked under Russian, on the, by Russian service providers at the moment. Um, you can visit other kind of Russian independent media outlets that have been forced kind of underground and only accessible by a kind of VPN systems. There's a really great way of kind of raising awareness uh, while this train is stopped in Kibati. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you, Joe. When you when you talk to the to the locals, to the Lithuanians about the war, what what do they tell you? What's 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 their take on it? So in, in Kibati, as I said, kind of this it's a very kind of like an old population, and there's there's very limited English speakers there. So I I, I, I managed I, I managed to find I found one, and he was a young young lad called uh, Romash, and he he was born born in Kibati and has grown up there all his life. And he was generally he was generally concerned. He said, "Look, we're we're getting on with everyday life." And and he kind of noted that Russians uh, still cross the border every day in their kind of cars, and you, you you get kind of some driving Western BMWs, others driving kind of old Soviet era kind of bangers, um, and they, they're still coming in and out every day. But he said it's odd because he said essentially they are at war with these people on the other side. But what his main fear was was obviously these threats that are being made against Lithuania. It's his family that are going to be dragged into it because they are on the front line um, of of this. Um, so Kalingrad is uh, basically it's considered an ideal staging post for a, a Russian invasion of Europe, much like uh, Annex Crimea was used and, and Belarus uh, when Ukraine was uh, invaded in February. So he, he was telling me that actually my main fear is that my family are going to be dragged into this and it's it's we we just want to live a kind of peaceful and harmonious life with uh, the people of kalingrad and russia um but what he did say was quite interesting and this is uh, apparently quite common amongst people in kabati is that he had lots of friends and family and in kalingrad and he, he they'd often he would often go across to visit them they would come to visit visit him so it's it's it, and now that atmosphere has really changed and um he's basically unable to kind of do that anymore. It's, it's like kind of they're on kind of on kind of battle stations almost. Um, and uh, while I said earlier, you, you could kind of kind of while floating around this kind of small town where there's, there's one restaurant, there's one kind of local cafe and a few kind of corner shops and a supermarket. So there's nothing really there. You could kind of think that nothing's going on, but actually um, when I, when I stopped to uh, look at the, the truck, the truck point where the customs checks were happening there and then the the armed guards and the presence around the train station when the sleeper train came in you could to avoid like a horrible cliche you could really cut the tension with a knife they, they these people are aware that actually they are like kind of the, the ruler the plastic ruler at school is really a kind of a breaking point now and if, if if something isn't resolved with this kind of tensions then it really they fear it really could kind of escalate well, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Joe. Joe, you're back in Brussels now. You, you're a Brussels correspondent. Obviously, the EU and the granting of candidacy, candidacy status to Moldova and Ukraine in the past few days has been a, a huge story. What's the what's the talk in Brussels? What's the atmosphere like amongst the, the the politicians in the EU surrounding all of this? 
So yes, I'm back. Um, I'm back at the the kind of the EU summit building, the Justice Lipsus, where the European Council holds its holds its meetings, and where EU leaders yesterday uh, gave candidacy status to Ukraine and Moldova. Um, so it, it, it's kind of come with a mixed reaction. Um, so the Ukrainians I spoke to afterwards, they are, they are, they are really pleased. Um, and I know a lot of our listeners will be kind of critics of the EU. Um, and but I think in this case we should really set aside any kind of kind of ideas that we have about the EU. Um, and this is something that Ukraine, as soon as the invasion happened, they made it their sovereign decision to ask to join the EU. And they've, they've kind of gained this candidate status in record time. Um, so they, they are really pleased because this is one of their kind of, this is them standing up to Russia and saying, no, look, we want to be part of Western Europe. And this is one way that we see that possible. Um, but then you have the cynical amongst us who kind of have Ukraine being given this kind of fig leaf is it a kind of an empty promise of candidate status because it's going to take them decades maybe maybe 20 years before they can actually join the eu by basically delivering the reforms that they've promised to join join the bloc and, and, and there was something quite telling last night so about five minutes after uh, president Zelensky dialed in to thank eu leaders and he went through uh, every he basically thanked each of the 27 countries personally um, even Hungary, who he's kind of had, he's kind of running beefs with uh, because of their kind of pro-Russian stance in uh, in Budapest in the government there. But then, so Emmanuel Macron, who kind of holds the uh, kind of rotating presidency of the EU, came out and did a press conference with Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, the, the EU's kind of two permanent presidents uh, for the current time. And he basically said and kind of disregarded Ukraine's chances of becoming an EU member. He's like, look, we might not live in the same house, but we live in the same street. So he's basically saying that actually, while the candidate status isn't actually about becoming an EU member, it's about living in Europe's sphere of influence. And maybe we can help you out. Uh, you can follow our idea, our, our ideals and our kind of maybe our rules, but we're never going to really welcome you into the club. And there's, there's various reasons for that. And we're going, to do a, we're going to do a piece about that for the Sunday Telegraph, about how that Ukraine will become the fifth largest kind of EU member state in terms of like MEPs and voting rights but it will also become the EU's uh, poorest country because of obviously what's happened with the war and its economy in absolute tatters um, and it, it moves countries like Portugal and uh, into the, these kind of areas where they will have to become net payers into the system rather than net recipients of kind of EU funding so it's, been, it's really been met with kind of a mixed kind of bag of reactions but so on one hand the ukrainians are proud as punch the the commission and the, uh, the european council think they've done fantastically but then in member states there's still a lot of skepticism about whether they should really be allowed to actually join the eu and for the ukrainians are they are they aware of the skepticism how do they deal with it or are, as you said are they just sort of you know they, they've got they, they want to bask in this moment you know as much as they can yeah, so I, I think yeah, they're, they're basking in this moment, but they are acutely aware of the troubles that they've they've um, they've been on a months long diplomatic kind of push. And I was I, I sat down with the um, Ukrainian ambassador uh, to the EU uh, the other day, and he, he he was setting out kind of this is what the Netherlands think. And um, quite interestingly, the, the Danish, the, the Denmark, have always been against EU enlargement. Well, but they publicly came out and said, look, we don't mind kind of the EU growing in size. We don't mind. Ukraine being omitted, but what we do have concerns with 
is and the process of joining the EU basically means the kind of country that wants to accede into it has to fill out a questionnaire and it's got about 120 different points it's about reforms and kind of how your demo how your democracy functions are are you like how's based how do you fight corruption are you is your judiciary kind of independent in such and such and um, Denmark raised a point on every single answer that Ukraine gave on that on that questionnaire and it even got to the stage of where the answers were kind of acceptable to Denmark they questioned whether it was actually the European Commission that drafted that part of the answer so it's got this is going to be a, a bitter and kind of long fought out uh, process but I think in 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 the short term and I'm sure kind of everyone will be on the same page leave leave Ukraine to kind of enjoy this moment they they understand that they're not going to be in for years they've got uh, they 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 know the EU would probably never let them in while there's still a war going on in their country. So they've they've got now bigger fish to fry. But the, this is just one hurdle in what their challenges are uh, as seen to win the war against uh, Russia. Hi, Joe. Could I uh, jump in and, and ask a couple of questions, uh, if I may? Um, just going back a little bit to Lithuania Kaliningrad border. When you say people there, you got the impression people are very, very nervous and, and talk about the, the long-standing ties they have, familial ties in some cases, to people in, in Kaliningrad. I mean, do, do, do you see that that is at odds with the the very firm view from the government that that is fully behind the effort to see Russia um, pushed back uh, to, to some point and, and the support for Ukraine? Um, or, or do you think that the, that the Lithuanian these people were expressing the the sort of deeper held beliefs that are are in the the Lithuanian government. Um, so then, no, it's a really interesting point, Dom. Um, and so this uh, Romash that I spoke to, he 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 was very keen to stress the fact that Lithuanians support Ukraine in 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 the war efforts uh, widely. He, he he was saying that. He said, "Look what Putin is doing, and he's, he's waging war um, in Ukraine." And and this was when I was asking him about this kind of night train and kind of the local efforts to kind of raise awareness amongst uh, amongst the Russians traveling on it. It's like, yeah, people need to know what's going on because because they Russians clearly don't know. So that they understand what their government's doing, and they understand the tough line because they know that if Russians come across the border, it will be them on the front line. They are really kind of party is is literally going to be on the front line of any invasion um that kind of comes through same with poland and this this is called the the seal uh, excuse my pronunciation the silwalkie gap it's a, a 62 mile kind of stretch of land from the, the tip of kalingrad and then the tip of uh, belarus and it, it kind of straddles the lithuanian and polish border so people there are they, they are they are concerned and they, and they, they back their government's kind of hard line kind of stance against russia because they know that it's it's, it is strength that kind of will see Putin off eventually. It's, we, we, they know that diplomacy has failed. They've, they've seen kind of Emmanuel Macron and other Western leaders try and negotiate with him and, and fail. And now we're at a stage where he's still, he's still kind of telling his troops to go and bombard and completely blow cities off the map. So they, 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 appreciate, they appreciate that as much. But obviously, like us all, we, we kind of want this war to come to an end for the sake of kind of just people's health and safety. Yeah, and, and as a um, as a comms professional such as you are, um, what do you think of the images and the the message, the content that the, the Russian people on the train are are fed if they want to hook to the Wi-Fi? So they were uh, for people who have just joined, so the Russians on the train going into into Kaliningrad in order to access the free Wi-Fi have to 
scroll through or be, be shown a load of graphic images from the the war in Ukraine. I mean, what what do you think of those? Because sometimes they can they can they can you know turn turn you off, or can sometimes be coming from a cold start if they've not heard any of these things before. They might feel it's um it's just too outrageous, too out, such a too big a step. I just wonder what you thought from your you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a sort of comms professional, what the, the messaging side of it was like? Of course, there's always, there's always the danger of kind of coming across too bombastic and too kind of mental almost. But I think they've basically taken a slight leaf out of the kind of the Western intelligence playbook and just actually just saying it as you see it at the moment. And I think that's, I, I honestly think that's the, the kind of best approach um, because as people in uh, Russia think that this is a special military operation to denazify fire and kind of protect Russian speakers in Ukraine. Um, when we, we know for a fact we've, we've had many correspondents in and around the Donbass, they've seen, and uh, in, in, in Butcher and Irpin, they've seen, they've seen this, what has been left behind by this Russian invasion. So if it takes showing this kind of really graphic and kind of gritty imagery, um, then maybe it might just do something. Maybe it might just kind of trigger a bit of thinking amongst kind of Russians who either don't know or are maybe too scared to kind of speak up and, and have an opinion because of the crackdown on kind of free media and opinion and thought in Moscow and around Russia. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, and just finally, back, back in Brussels now, can you just update us, because you're much closer to this than, than anyone here, um, update us on where the EU is on its sort of defence aspirations. It's talking talk about that we hear talk of the EU army every now and again and the, the common uh, foreign policy and um, was it common security defence policy but where where is the EU right now in seeing itself in terms of hard power? Um, I think still very much in a kind of discussion phase they I think they're acutely aware and that there there are there um, there are some leaders like your Emmanuel Macrons who want this kind of idea of European defensive uh, sovereignty they they want kind of a European army, but then there there are large swathes, and this was this was actually quite interesting. I was speaking to um a English chap in Lithuania um, who runs kind of the Lithuanian British kind of commerce club, um, a guy called Chris Butler. He's lived there for twenty seven years, and I I said what 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 do you kind of think about uh, how Lithuanians perceive Britain and kind of Brexit? And he said, look, Brexit at, at start kind of put them off, but then what they see now is they 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 see kind of more benefit the the Baltic countries, the Poles, the Central Europeans. They 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 don't see kind of the EU providing them security. They see that at NATO level. So actually, the EU still has a long way to go before it's going to be kind of one of inform this kind of idea of an EU army, a genuine security policy, a genuine foreign policy, because there are too many people don't trust the likes of Emmanuel Macron. They don't trust Olaf Scholz. They don't trust Draghi, but what when it comes to security, they do trust the they trust Boris Johnson and the Brits. They trust uh, they trust the Americans. They trust how NATO operates. So I think that argument, while some are pushing it, we are still a very long way off of actually having a genuine kind of EU army and defence policy. But what have we have seen is kind of unprecedented funding. So the EU has agreed to joint funding to basically buy Ukraine weapons. And what they do is they've got a pot, it stands at 2 billion euros at the moment. And basically member states, uh, see the French, the, the Poles, anyone that sent weapons to Ukraine can basically draw down from this fund and then use it to replace and replenish their own stocks which they're giving to Ukraine. So 
they, they're kind of at a crossroads almost. They're, they're doing some really bold and kind of innovative stuff um, in terms of that. But then the idea that they can move away from kind of the F-35 uh, fighter jet program and kind of come up with a really European-only fighter jet um, is still a bit long, a long way away because a lot, a lot of the countries still trust America. They trust Britain more when it comes to security. Just one more question from me, Joe. Thank you so much for this. This has been absolutely fascinating and it's really good to hear hear from you and, and hear about your reporting in Lithuania and in Brussels. Um, just on just a final question on the candidacy status for Ukraine. What what actually happens now? I mean you said it could take it could take decades um for, for this to be resolved, but what are, are there any what are the sort of bureaucratic points? You know, if you're a Ukrainian listening to this very, very pleased about what's happened, what should they know about what comes next? So basically they are um they are tasked with, and the European Commission has to finalise this under what EU leaders agreed last night, a list of reforms that basically bring their economy, their judiciary, their uh, parliamentary democracy, um, their fight against corruption, um, all up to what are deemed the EU standards. And basically then, once the Commission deems them to be up to EU standards... The Commission then goes back to the member states and said, look, we believe that Ukraine has met the criteria for joining. And now we want you to vote on it again and see if you you accept that. So in these, and as, as, as I said, these, these reforms are likely to take decades. There's been um, countries in the kind of a session poll and for, for kind of almost 18, 19 years. And, and the Albanians uh, were quite good at this yesterday. They basically said they basically warned the Ukrainians that look, don't expect to join very quickly coming from a country that has been waiting for nearly two decades to join. And we've done everything the EU has said, said of us, but they, there's always one country or two countries or three countries that basically don't really want us to join. And um, so it has opened up a kind of an interesting debate about EU enlargement as a whole. And this is why Emmanuel Macron kind of thinks they should, they should have a, a core kind of EU made up of the 27 current members and then an outer ring, what he calls a, a European political community, which basically is a group of countries in the Western Balkans, Ukraine, who all kind of have aspirations to join the EU, but he doesn't really want them in the EU because he doesn't think they fulfil the ultimate criteria of becoming an EU country. Well, thank you very much, Joe, and thank you, Dom. Um, it's Friday, so I'm just going to ask you for your final thoughts. What should our listeners be uh, paying attention to and thinking of over today and the next few days? So I think the eyes have to be in the Donbass now. If Severodonetsk is going to be ceded to the Russians, then we will see if if this vaunted uh, armoured thrust west is is real or or the stuff of, of Russian dreams. I think it's probably the latter. If they take that pocket in the um, and they take the rest of the Luhansk Oblast, then it'll be really interesting to see how it, how that's met because that doesn't constitute the Donbass. There's still a hell of a long way to go to, to get the Donbass. There's huge swathes of the, of the Donetsk oblast still um, in ukrainian hands so if luhansk falls to, to russia just keep an eye on the messaging out of moscow and quite how whether or not they talk in terms of don't don't overplay it guys you know, we've still got a long way to go or yep small, small victory but it's a it's a long march yet not that kind of thing or if they if they really trumpet it um which might suggest that they know as i suspect that they've culminated which is not going back but not able to take any further offensive action for a little while i think russia is about to culminate and this they're just not going to be able to push to the west and to the south so let's see how this anticipated victory in luhansk is 
um, is communicated by Moscow. Thank you very much, uh, Dom. Joe Barnes, as our guest, would you like the final words? Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, kind of echo what Dom, Dom says in the Donbass. That's going to be, um, that's the, the real focal point of what's become a war of attrition there. But I think in in Europe, I think coming looking forward uh, to the G7 this weekend and the NATO summit next weekend, there's a few a few things we should look at carefully. Um, one is Boris Johnson is going over a clear message and it's warning kind of Western leaders not to force Ukraine into signing a a rubbish peace deal, a bad peace deal. He basically wants the West to keep on backing Ukraine, backing Ukraine, backing Ukraine, until Ukraine basically says, now's the time we're going to end the war on our own terms. And basically the British argument is, let's make sure Ukraine doesn't have a gun to its head when it decides it wants to go to the negotiating table with Russia. And the other one is uh, regarding the Baltic states and the, and the so-called tripwire defence that they basically offer NATO against Russia. So the idea of a, a tripwire defence force is a, a small force on the on the eastern flank of NATO, and it basically acts as a, a hurdle uh, for if there's a Russian invasion. And the Baltics have raised, are going, they're going to raise this in a, in a big way at the summit in Madrid, is the fact that they're not quite happy with the current NATO doctrine when it comes to defending against a Russian invasion. So under current defence plans, NATO allies will come to the aid of the country that's been invaded or the countries that have been invaded uh, and liberate them after 180 days. But they've, they've seen what's happened um, in Mariupol, in, in Syria-Vedonetsk. These, these cities have been basically wiped off the face of the earth by a kind of Russian shelling and kind of kind of Russian bombardment. So they're saying 180 days is not kind of long, it's too long for for, for us to wait because we our, our cities just could be raised to the ground. We will have nothing nothing left. Basically, we're wiped off the earth. We're wiped out, wiped out history books. So what the Baltics want is they, they, they want more permanently stationed NATO troops in their countries, basically to act as invader deniers, so to actually stop a Russian invasion, not to let it happen. So that's going to be one of the really interesting debates about kind of defensive postures that we're going to witness at NATO. And that's that's probably saying me and Dom, who are, so we're both attending the summit in Madrid, we can probably talk about next week. One of the potentially underappreciated aspects of the invasion of Ukraine is the country's sheer size. The landmass is larger than France, considerably so, and there are over 40 million people living in the country. Thanks to Russia's invasion, every single one now has a war story. This is just one of them. My name is Anna. I'm 27 years old. I'm from Kiev and all my family always been living here, about seven generations of our family. I'm living on the right bank of the Kiev. Uh, that's uh, not far from Irpin. Uh, to be honest, like half of Kiev wanted to live there before war. It's uh, nice, it's beautiful, it's park, uh, nice for children, uh, for dogs, and uh, generally very, very safe. So let's talk about the, the start of the invasion. Um, what was your situation? Uh, you, you'd just tested positive for COVID, is that right? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right, because on 20th of February, uh, I just felt sick. Uh, and uh, on the evening of uh, 23rd of February, it was 11 o'clock. Uh, late night almost uh i had my positive test and uh okay so we have to buy some medicine so everything was fine i woke up early in the morning it was about five o'clock 
uh, my phone was constantly ringing, was uh, vibrating all the time. So because of my work, I usually almost sleep with my phone. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, I was looking at like, uh, my uh, working chat. Uh, people were like, okay, something's going on. Uh, we hear noises and I was, okay, some plane maybe or everything else because not only me living uh, near the airport, my couple of colleagues as well. Uh, and uh, to be honest, I went to sleep. Um, about 20 to 30 minutes later, uh, my husband, he came and he woke me up uh, and only words he told me was, it has begun. So, honey, wake up, it has begun, that's all. And uh, we, we knew that that's our, our life, that's all. That's the end of our uh, very peaceful, very nice uh, middle-class uh, life with a cafe and uh, uh, Friday night deliveries and uh, our cinema and working the dog in the park. So, like any other person, I think, in any other country. So early on in the war, there was heavy, heavy fighting around, right around where, where you live, around the airport with the, the Russian landing there and the Ukrainian fight back against that. How aware were you of that? We were at home. I was sick and uh, uh, I was like working, walking around my flat, uh, just thinking, oh, I need a coffee, <laughs> I need some breakfast. So your, your mind, your brain, uh, it doesn't understand uh, what's going on fully. Well, okay, I hear bombs, okay, I feel bombs, uh, because everything was vibrating, all the city was vibrating. Um, I hear noises, and uh, we even uh, heard, I don't know what it was, it was like um, shots, uh, like, uh, I don't know, maybe AK-47 or, or whatever, we, we heard a lot. And uh, um, also, the city, it was bustling. Uh, all, all the noises, a lot of noises, and it was early in the morning. And a, a lot of people were frustrated. I called my mom. She said that uh, she's in Odessa. And she said that, um, yeah, uh, we're under the missile attack as well. So, uh, and we, we didn't know what to do. And she's uh, the smartest person I know, to be honest. Um, and uh, I thought that, uh, now I'm gonna uh, tape my windows. So, <laughs> like around uh, till the ten o'clock in the morning, I was ta taping all the windows in my apartment. Why did you do that? Well, uh, we were preparing. So we had uh, everyone in Ukraine. Um, well, not everyone. Fifty-fifty. Some people, uh, military people mostly. They were ready. They knew that. Uh, it's it's gonna be one way or another a week or so months or so it's gonna happen um other people like me uh, we were okay we can prepare like a backpack uh, just just in case um we read some articles how to uh, secure your home. Uh, we took off all the mirrors, for example, and uh, we taped all the uh, glass doors of uh, every furniture we have in the main place. So we knew about two walls rule, how we uh, that is gonna protect us from the uh, uh, small pieces from uh, the explosion or so. It just that's that things uh, we were 
uh, exploring <laughs> throughout the beginning, uh, the end of the 2021 and in the beginning of 2022, because we knew that uh, it might happen. Uh, but um, everyone was, everyone I know, uh, even on the farmer's market, uh, in the streets, everyone was saying, Nah, no, they're not so stupid. That's not gonna happen. Everything will be fine. Um, well, and also our president and prime minister, they were telling, no, on the 1st of May, we're gonna, um, make some barbecue and other stuff. So everything is gonna be fine. And we believe that. Yeah. What was life like for the next few months as, as, as the, as the battles raged around the airport and then Butcher and Erpin? We were, the, the city was preparing for the sage, for the long sage. Something similar to what we have, what we saw was in Mariupol. So we, uh, we knew that there was two scenarios. First scenario, Kyiv will be destroyed to the ground. The next scenario, uh, we will be under occupation for a while. And uh, luckily, thanks to our army, uh, all our defense forces, uh, we survived. Um, for the usual person, um, yeah, there was uh, some problems with uh, um, food. Um, we didn't have uh, the range of uh, the variety of food we used to. Uh, but at some point, it was uh, also quite a funny moment because uh, first or second week of the war in the stores we had avocado, hamon, uh, expensive wines and some uh, citrus uh, exotic uh, fruits and citrus fruits and that's, that's all and that's all we had because every uh, very similar uh, simple products people got everything from the stores it was empty but it was uh, it wasn't very long just a couple of days uh um, I, as a citizen, I'm very thankful to our uh, city uh, for uh, keeping everything in order. Uh, there was no uh, level of chaos it could be. Every, everyone was quite calm. Uh, they told us uh, we had immediately like telegram channels and everything that our mayor is on uh, constant connect with the, the uh, citizens telling like, okay, we all, we already have a digital map with the uh, working stores, work, working pharmacy and, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There were, uh, longest queues I've ever seen. You had to, uh, stand in a queue for about four to five hours to get your medicines, uh, or to get uh, your food or, but, uh, we didn't have um, the shortage that could impact us as we, as we saw in Mariupol, for example. So it wasn't that uh, tragic. So during this time, you, you start working again. What was it like working when you have air raid sirens and, and missiles going overhead? It's distract. It helps to distract. Uh, it very helps. So uh, when I started work, working, uh, I still had COVID, uh, so, but well, I, I felt my, much better. We, we felt much better. And um, uh, I, I told my boss that uh, until I have internet 
and I until I can uh, I can think, I'll be working, I'll be doing my job. Uh, I'm the kind of person uh, that's uh, getting together in a stressful situation. So I knew I'm going to uh, do much more with my computer <laughs> rather than running around my block with uh, some weapons. <laughs> and just bringing the story, bringing your story to um, to today, what's the, the Russians have retreated from Kyiv. Um, the battle is now in the east. What's has has life gone back to a relatively normal for you? What what's it like on the streets for you? Well, uh, I think th- since the uh, mid um, April situation got slightly normal, um, slightly normal normal because we have um, military military patrols all the time. Three to five people, well, they're just walking around uh, every block. But uh, it makes me, for example, feel safe. Um, we have open stores, open cafes, new restaurants working, and uh, cinema is working. So I can go to IMAX and see Doctor Strange too. <laughs> uh, just. Uh, a kind of normal life, but we all know that uh, as soon as we hear air raid siren, we have to hide. And uh, to be honest, most of our people uh, just don't care about this uh, as much as those who stayed in Kiev. So Kiev, just for understanding, Kiev was empty. It was the emptiest city, I, I think, in Ukraine. Um, maybe 10 to 15% of people stayed in here, well, well in my block, uh, around my area. Uh, it was very empty, and when people started to coming back, um, we, those who stayed, we saw those people because they're more loud, they are, even look different. So they uh, and acted differently. Uh, well, uh, simple example. When something loud is going on uh, in the street or out of my uh, building, I'm not uh, running to the window and I'm not looking what's going on. I'm running away from window. And those who uh, didn't hear, didn't feel, uh, they uh, was in safer, safer places. They have those instincts that um, we had in our previous life. So we have to check what's going on and the curiosity of the situation. Uh, we don't. We're running away from windows and uh, uh, we need two, uh, two walls to hide uh, behind. Obviously, for this podcast, we've spoken to a, a lot of Ukrainians. And one thing we, we always try and ask is, you know, what's, you know, we, we are a British newspaper. We're based in London. Uh, Boris Johnson has made a, um, you know, he, he's been to Ukraine twice. He's seen as one of the closest allies of, of, of President uh, Zelensky. Um, and I've, I've heard from quite a few Ukrainians now that they have a sort of crush on Boris Johnson. Is, is that true? Yeah, <laughs> that's Boris Johnson is a big thing. <laughs> um, we are so grateful that uh, United Kingdom uh, was 
the first and staying with us till this day and showing all the support and giving all the support. Um, United Kingdom was the country that gave us a lot of weapons, understanding that something might happen, or we know that uh, intelligence services told that, yeah, it's going to happen. Um, so, um, yeah, Boris Johnson is like a star. <laughs> we, we are extremely grateful to every nation, and uh, uh, we understand that it's a lot for every country's economy, for every country's security, for um, amount of resources every country given us. Uh, Baltic countries and uh, United Kingdom. That's like, thank you for and for all, every every one of you who's helping, who's saying that uh, there is a war in Ukraine. Don't forget about it. Uh, they still there. They still fighting. Anna, is there anything um, we haven't spoken about or that you'd want to say, want to bring up? Um, you know, I remembered one. Uh, thing you was telling, um, you was asking how 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 we felt, how I changed, um, and I remember that for about a month, I didn't sleep in my bed, <laughs> and uh, uh, we we slept in bathroom, and uh, uh, we why, have, why why was that? Uh, because of constant uh, missile attacks. It was at night, so uh, we have uh, big windows, and we thought that uh, if uh, glass gonna crash, uh, it hit us. So we, uh, as a lot, a lot of people slept and lived in their hallways and uh, bathrooms. So we have cast iron uh, bathroom, and uh, uh, we decided that. Uh, this old thing gonna survive <laughs> and we're gonna sleep in there so all three of us me my husband and our dog we were sleeping in our bathroom um, yeah uh, and still uh, lots of people sleeping in their um, uh, in uh, in their clothes fully dressed and so we are we are sleeping fully dressed in I'm sleeping in white sweatpants and in socks and yeah, we're just waiting for the moment that we hope not going to happen. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.